Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. This is your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a great episode talking with my brother, Jim. We've been friends for a while. I love everything he's doing. He's changing the game. Today, we're going to be talking about leadership and what leadership is not. But first, I want to thank our sponsors, me. Um, today, I want to let you guys know that we got a brand new coffee out. If you guys missed that old military coffee that had that mud-like ass-kicking coffee, that's what that is. Twice as much caffeine as any other coffee out there. Um, but I'm actually giving this bag away today. This bag is being given away to somebody on April 2nd. If you want to win that bag of coffee, just type me in the comments and, and I'll get it to you. And also, we have new uh, swag, T-shirts, hats. That we're gonna that's coming out, but what we're doing is we're giving 22% of all of our proceeds to help Project Die Hard 22, which is helping veterans that are struggling with homelessness. So we're just always paying it forward on this show, guys. Like I said, if you if you love talking about leadership, military mindset, this is the man you want to talk to, Jim, my brother. Welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, Richard. Um, I'm happy to be here. This is going to be fun. So talk to us. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and what kind of little boy was Jimmy? Oh, boy. I was uh, born in New Jersey. My dad was stationed at Fort Dix. I remember nothing about it because uh, we moved back to California before I was two years old. And I grew up in San Jose, California and Madrid, Spain. Uh my family was there for seven years, uh, moved out there when I was in um, high school and um, Catholic family. Uh, dad was an engineer, a rocket test engineer, and uh, my mother was a nurse. So, um, you know, two incomes and three kids. And we moved to Spain um, quite unceremoniously, as it turned out, my dad just announced it one day and said, hey, we're going to be moving in October to Madrid. And I was like, oh, hell no. Because <laughs> so, I was a teenager. I already knew everything. Um, so I kind of made an ass out of myself um, because I didn't want to be there because I was at you know, a private Jesuit school in San Jose, a lot of family legacy there. And um, you know, a lot of friends at home and uh, it was not easy to stay in touch with people at home. You know, we we would record uh, mixtapes and audio letters and send them back <laughs> back in the um, late 70s. Um, so I f ended up finishing high school in San Jose, but I kind of got the best of both worlds because I was going back and forth uh, one or two times a year to Madrid. Um, and so I got um, sort of introduced to the military through that. Um, I kind of knew that I wanted to be a pilot at the time and um, met a lot of uh, military people at Tachés. Uh, we were pretty close to Torrejon Air Base. And um, so we knew a lot of military families, some of whose dependents uh, went to the high school that I went to, the American School in Madrid. So I got this big built-in uh, network of friends worldwide who were alumni there. And um, I ended up coming back to the States, finished high school, went to uh, college at San Jose State after a, a detour to a private college down here in LA called Loyola Marymount. Jesuit school too. And so I kind of got steeped in that Jesuit education, the traditions, the, um, you know, linguistics, history, mathematics, science, all of that stuff. And I also grew up with my uncle, my dad's brother was a very well-known politician uh, in California. And so I grew up around democratic politics you know, since I was five years old, right? And uh, always knew what was going on in the party, always knew what was going on in presidential elections because my uncle was invariably involved in, you know, uh, representing the California Democratic Party in presidential elections. And I just kind of grew up with that outlook. 
um, hearing about Martin Luther King, hearing about Bobby Kennedy, hearing about Cesar Chavez, and you know, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, like the most liberal place in the earth. And but at the same, huh? pretty good music come out of that air, the Bay Area. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, Jefferson Airplane, the Journey. Oh yeah, 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 and. Um, you know, I in, I had a cousin ever since I can remember growing up. My aunt and uncle adopted her from the Dominican Republic. She's black. And so even in um, Marin County and uh, Berkeley and all of those areas, I saw that kind of racist crap firsthand, right, uh, growing up and just like not understanding that kind of bullshit. And then questioning why people were like that and questioning when the vietnam vets were coming home why people were you know spitting at them and for doing their jobs that <laughs> in a shitty war that the, that uh you know they were just shoved into by the country so i saw all that stuff that inequity the the um the the lack of opportunity for people um both veterans and and uh people of color and so that was just like an ongoing theme throughout my life and you know trying to uh figure out how to fight against stuff like that so being a very liberal democrat i then chose to go into the military <laughs> so that made for an interesting 27 years and some very interesting conversations you know you know i've um, had i've interviewed probably almost 500 people on this show yeah. Um, and I love talking to my veterans and I love everybody's recruiting story. So talk to me about your recruiting story and how that went. Well, uh, my dad was a rocket test engineer. And so um, the Apollo launches, anything having to do with space and, and aeronautics was a really big deal to me. And I wanted to be a fighter pilot. So I sort of recruited myself in that sense. Um <clears throat> And so when I was at Loyola Marymount, I enrolled in ROTC. And then when I decided I didn't want to be an engineer, uh, I left there and I wound back up at San Jose State and got a degree in history. And I had a pilot slot out of there and <clears throat> um, got my commission and then, you know, went into the program to try and become a pilot. And it didn't work out. So what didn't work out about it? Well, when you back then, when you graduate from ROTC and you have a pilot slot, they send you to what was called flight training program. And the idea behind that was go to a civilian flight school, get enough of the basics to, to fly straight and level. If you're lucky enough to solo, great. And then you've got the basic you know, actions and ability to fly uh, an aircraft so that when you go into undergraduate pilot training, you're not completely overwhelmed by this is an airplane and this is how, you, you know, you work it. <clears throat> they fired our contractor because he was um, double billing the Air Force. And so I didn't have a program to go into. So they sent us to Lackland Air Force Base down to Medina Annex, where, um, what do we call them? The uh, the um, the ninety day wonders, the uh, officer training school down there for people who already have their college degrees. Okay. And um, God, I can't remember it. <laughs> That's weird. But um, the program they had there is called flight screening, and the idea behind that was. If you got a pilot slot, we want to make sure that you got enough basic aptitude to fly an airplane so that we have a comfortable feeling that you're going to graduate from pilot training before we spend the money to send you to OTS, Officer Training School. <clears throat> and so I went into that program and that program is designed to screen people. It's not designed to train people. And I ended up getting screened because I just couldn't maintain the landing picture and I wasn't, it would have taken too long to, to train me 
to, you know, get it right. So it's all about, you know, time and expense. And <laughs> so I remember, you know, I had to turn in my flight suit and all that stuff. And I went into the, the commander of the officer training school. And here's this guy with, you know, senior command pilot wings on. Of course, he's a colonel. And he leans back in his chair and says, hmm, you know, not everybody's meant to be a pilot, son. And I just wanted to reach across the desk and slap him. You know, it's like, you're not good enough to join my club. You know, what good are you? And it's like, that was a hell of a gut punch, you know, because my whole dream was to be a pilot and there was no way I could do it in the Air Force. Right. Now, and let's talk about that a little bit, because, you know, there's a lot of people yeah. that are listening to this, including myself, that have failed at things, but they don't realize that failure is an event. It's not a person. And right. So exactly. You have to reimagine and reinvent. <clears throat> so talk about that process. Well, I kind of got lucky um, in regards to having a history degree meant that if I was going to just get out of the Air Force, the only thing I could really do with that was go back to school and get a teaching credential, which meant another couple of years of college that I didn't want to do. I, I was done with school. I wanted to get to work. So um, intelligence made the most sense. And that's what I ended up going into. Um, because, you know, I've got this degree in history. I know about how the world works and how countries work and, and enough about all of that stuff to make it, you know, a good foundation for being an intelligence officer. So that's what I did. I went to Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado, and I graduated in December of 84. And I was lucky enough to um, get a slot as a human officer. And so I came out of uh, Intel school and went straight to Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And I was working at the uh, headquarters for the Air Force's organization for human, which was called the Air Force Special Activities Center. And as a command, it was kind of oddly named because it was the only command in the Air Force that was called the center and the way the commands are structured that wasn't actually correctly designated and all this other BS. But um, I started working special projects in operations and, you know, um, doing collection programs for very high level, very intense stuff. And um, then, you know, after a year there, I, you know, went to uh, become the SSO, but I went to interrogation school. Um, I did a lot of interrogation support. I did, you know, a few, um, a few training missions and uh, deployments. I think I did every single exercise in Korea twice. Um, and nobody knew what the hell to do with us when we got there. <laughs> we went to um, Team Spirit for the first time. And, you know, the guy who was in charge of the intel um, part of the exercise was like, okay, you guys do this, 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 and this. And they came to us, me and my partner, last um, and said, what are you guys? They said, we're, we're human. Human? Uh, hell, I don't know what you guys do. So just, you know, help the photo interpreters. And I'm like, <laughs> great. <laughs> so, yeah. And and rein, as far as reinventing myself goes, I had this um, inkling of a passion when I was in ROTC. Well, what does it take to make an organization work, to build an organization, to um, design the work in the organization so that the people who are working there feel like they belong to something that's important, that they're valued, and um, that they're doing something meaningful, right, beyond just pay. And then I started, you know, learning about management science and, and reading books. And 
the interrogation stuff and the uh, debriefing stuff was really about human nature and, you know, lying, lie detection, and just understanding human behavior. So I kind of coupled those things together with human behavior in organizations, organizational behavior, and I just started learning about that, that stuff. <clears throat> and it also all tied into leadership. So I kind of just drifted into this uh, reinvention. Um, it wasn't much of a shock for me. I kind of got lucky in that sense. And I just learned a shit ton along the way. So, you know, you know, I went in the military in 1986. And back then, from I say from 86 to probably 92, 93, there was, there was still the good old boy system. Oh, yeah. And we're still, um, you know, back slapping going on. You still had, you know, if you, if you weren't in the cool kids club, uh, you, you kind of had to work extra hard. And I'm sure that you coming from the, from the background you came, you came from, I'm sure you, tr you've seen a lot of that and tried to fight back with a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, but I also, since I was raised in Catholic Jesuit environment, I also had a great understanding and affinity for traditions and how they came across and, and rules and how they kind of evolved and developed. And so my big thing was, um, I respect these things um, until the letter of the law breaks the spirit of the law, you know, and then we're doing things just because that's the way we're supposed to. And the reason why we're supposed to is died. And that, that kind of stuff bugged me. So I, um, <laughs> I think my first big challenge with rank and the good old boys network was especially in intelligence and in human, I was working with a lot of old heads that were actually in the, um, the OSS during World War II. And I mean, these guys were like icons of the intelligence community, especially human and the CIA and that type of stuff. Um, and yeah, there was a good old boys quality to that. And um, most of the guys were like, pretty laid back it's like well okay we got a job to do let's get it done how can i help what do we need to do you know that type of thing but there were one or two you know jerks i had so i was the sso and i got this new colonel um and i was assigned directly to the to the uh, director of operations and this guy kept pestering me for details that he wasn't legally allowed to have about personnel security. And um, I, I got chewed out by him for two and a half hours um, because he had decided to go to the wrong badging facility. <laughs> and I told him, don't go to the Pentagon, go to Boeing Air Force Base. I'm going to pass your clearance over there. Yes, yes, Jim, I understand. And he decided to go to the Pentagon. Of course, they didn't have his clearance. And he came back and just chewed my ass out because I couldn't get the clearance passed over while he was there. And I was like, at that point, I was like, I can't work around this guy anymore. Screw him. So I just, you know, yes, sir, saluted smartly, left his office and went uh talk to my um, NCO, who actually by that time, I had um, a senior master sergeant who had his entire career was in SSO, uh, special security. And so he knew the regs inside and out. And he goes, why are you assigned to him? You're supposed to be assigned to the senior intelligence officer. That's who you're supposed to report to directly. And since this is an intel organization, it would be the commander, right? And I'm like, okay sure show me that in the regs and so i talked to the commander and he said well i don't want you to report to me so i'll designate the vice commander as the senior intelligence officer for this organization and you'll work for him I said, okay great and this guy was a former he was a colonel who was a former uh, security forces guy cop air force cop and he was fairly laid back get the job done what do you need 
uh, type of guy and things went smoothly from there. And I, I discovered that <laughs> if, a, if somebody comes in and talks for five hours about how important the people are and how he doesn't micromanage, he's lying. <laughs> and that same thing happened to me on my next assignment when I was in Korea. So that's now, another bunch of ugly How students. many years did you do in the military? So I stayed in for about five and a half years of active duty um, because I incurred a, an obligation of an extra year for uh, some educational benefits. And I separated in... Uh, 1989 when I came back from Korea and then went into the reserves. And the main reason I did that was I was in the middle of my master's program because back then it was, if you want to make major, you got to have a master's. And I'm like, okay. And I'm not the kind of guy who likes to do what everybody else does. And everybody was getting MBAs in finance. And I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with, you know, leadership and the military and organizational behavior? And I found this MS in systems management through USC. And the whole program had been started uh, at the request of the Air Force because the Air Force spends the most money on large scale systems. And so systems management and systems theory was something that people were just paying attention to and getting into in those times. So they created this program through USC and it was available at most major bases, but it wasn't available at Korea. So I took some time off from that. And then when, so my deal was I wanted to come back to the States to someplace where I could finish up the degree. And oh, by the way, USC was closing all of the base programs outside of California. And I got my assignment, <laughs> which I was supposed to be able to have my pick of. And I was assigned to Strategic Air Command Headquarters as a command briefer, which back then it was if you made one mistake, you were fired. I mean, it was just ridiculous. You had to, you know, everything had to be perfect down to your slide changes and, you know, everything. And it was like, if you get nervous, you're fucked. Excuse me. <laughs> um, but uh, so I said, no, 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 no. I, I want to go to a squadron level intelligence in somewhere in California so I can, you know, finish up the master's program. And so they got me a, a squadron level position at um, March Air Force Base in Riverside, California, which is down here in the South Southern California, about an hour away from Los Angeles. Uh, so I could, you know, drive in, take my courses at USC or somewhere near. And I was like, okay, that'll work. But I forgot that it was a strategic air command base because it was a bomber squadron. And when the Air Force turned me over to SAC, SAC looked at my name and number and said, hey, this was the guy we wanted to send to uh, Omaha. And so they gave me a change of assignment. And after I finished my midterm leave, I got back, went to the Olympics in, in Seoul in 88. That was fun. And I looked at that change of assignment notification. I said, all right, hell with that. And I just signed my 10-day um, exit. And this was in, oh, I guess, October, September, October, November, something like that. And my commitment meant that I had to stay in until April. So I PCSed out of that and separated in April of 89 and went home and tried to figure out what I was going to do with myself as a civilian. And uh, I stayed in uh, intelligence in HUMIT um, as a reservist. And that that was a career field that I maintained the entire time. So, you know, for a lot of people don't realize, because I, I did most of my time was in National Guard. And, mm -hmm. you know, National Guard reserves, it's not like you're 100% soldier. You're right. not 100% civilian but you're expected to, to be everything and if right there's ever a wedding um anything good ever happened that's on your weekend and sometimes yeah. you know your weekends went back to back to back to where sometimes if you hold a regular job you wouldn't have off for like 
six or seven weeks. So talk to oh, us yeah. about trying to live the lifestyle of a reservist. Well, I was pretty lucky in that as an intelligence reservist, especially as a human, um, there weren't a lot of intel. And as a matter of fact, there's only two reserve intelligence squadrons. So I was not a unit reservist. I was an individual mobilization augmentee, which meant um, as far as drilling on the weekends, they just found a bunch of intelligence people in a geographical area and said, okay, you guys are now an intelligence reserve detachment and you will train together. So do whatever you can do on your weekends and then we'll figure out, you know, some annual tours for you. So we just kind of went out and found people that we could support. And like one of the um, units that we supported, which was really cool from the beginning, was the um, the uh, Air National Guard um, pararescue unit in Moffett Field. And so we were dealing with PJs and um, and I was just always in awe of these guys because they're they're special forces. They're um, you know doing this really intense uh, type of training, this really intense mission, and you know halo parachute jumps and all this kind of stuff, which is like as a reservist or as a guardsman, that's a full time job in and of itself, and. Then they had a full-time job as a civilian. So I was like, geez, how do you even get time to, you know, kiss your kids goodnight? And we, you know, we worked with them. We built up their intelligence organization, um, got into a lot of, um, you know, support for them, briefings and things like that. And then there was reorganization for the intelligence reserve uh, people and human and, um, DIA decided that they were going to be the executive agency for all military HUMIT. So all people with the HUMIT MOS or AFSC were reassigned to DIA as a reservist. And um, that's when my life kind of changed because I was going to an actual uh, working field office doing actual intelligence collection um, as a HUMIT officer, which was the most actual intelligence collection work that I'd ever done um, because I really didn't get a lot of chance to do it on active duty. And with the reserve structure the way it was, um, we also had an intelligence, um, we had a school for interrogation, four week course, there was a basic and an advanced course. And so my first three years as a reservist, I would, come down here to Los Alamitos uh, in California near Long Beach and we uh, taught interrogation and I was a source role player and and uh, that was a lot of fun because get to mess with the <laughs> mess with the students heads a lot so how but, many years, um, how many years did you do total uh 27 total so I retired in 2010 and what ended up happening is um, I was out of work for a while, for a couple of years after I was um, laid off from IBM in 2002 and yeah, 2000, you know, late 2001, early 2002, and then found out about a need down at Vandenberg Air Force Base. They wanted somebody who was a had a communications background, which I had from working with IBM, and an intelligence background, which of course was my AFSC, because they wanted to stand up a couple of squadrons at Vandenberg Air Force Base. And so I went down there and in early 2003, just before, you know, the the war with Iraq kicked off. And so things got really busy um, during that time frame. And I just ended up staying there off and on for about six years out of the last seven of my career. 
And so I learned about space. I was able to use my, um, my education and my training, especially around leadership to do some things and run some projects that I was completely untrained for. Um, I had never stood up squadrons, never did manning documents. Um, I had enough knowledge of computers to handle the communications um, concepts and then work through the processes of, you know, dealing with building out infrastructures, um, upgrading facilities, making skiffs, um, installing, you know, Cipernet, Nippernet, and um, JWix and that type of thing. And so I just got a lot of experience getting things done that for some reason, people who were there couldn't get done. And now I had one yeah. of my favorite books of all time is uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by mm -hmm. Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter. Right. And I had her on my show and I was talking about, you know, Robert said that the two of the best training programs for sales are IBM. Mm -hmm. and they said they were the, some of the best training programs in the world. You think you learned a lot from IBM? Um, I was, well, I was working for Lotus um, because IBM had bought Lotus because they wanted a consolidated um, email system that they could use for 300,000 employees around the world. And they decided that it would be easier to buy one than to put together all their stuff. And then they found Lotus Notes and they said, okay, well, that looks good. How much would that cost? And for a couple of, a couple of million dollars more, they could buy the whole damn company. So they bought the whole company and things started to change while I was there. And um, I saw the culture about sales. Um, and, you know, I, of course, I, you know, bumped shoulders with a lot of salesmen as a civilian in my uh, different civilian jobs. Um, so the culture was there, the training in anything that anybody needed to do the job was there. Um, and yeah, IBM's well known for that. Uh, General Electric too, my dad worked for GE. So I saw a lot of the stuff that he was bringing home and the courses he was taking. So this idea about constant development and constant learning was kind of just in the air, right? And so I, I took I took that away with me and it just made me want to, you know, learn more about different things that I was interested in. So yeah, it definitely helped. Definitely you know, now helped. there's there, you know, a lot of people and when even when they become adults, they say that the the average ten, top 10% CEOs in the world read between 50 and 60 books a year. Mm -hmm. uh, but the average adult doesn't crack a book for a whole year. Right. So, you know, and I believe, that, you know, learners are earners and readers are leaders. So Absolutely. Self-development and it being a never ending thing. Yeah. Um, there's always. You can learn any something from everybody that you meet. Right. Um, because they got a different perspective, even if they've done the exact same things that you've done, they did it in a different way and they approached it differently. So always being open-minded and looking for new information and new perspectives and new ways of doing things and not being, um, you know, so self-important that you think you know it already. It's like, like the Zen saying, you can't pour anything into your cup until you empty it some, right? You can't, you know, if you think you know everything, then you're not going to learn anything. So, um, that, that was just kind of an idea that I, I absorbed through osmosis again, through working with IBM and being around my father and, and, um, because he really pushed us to kind of learn about wherever you are, learn from where you are. And when we were in Spain, almost every weekend, we'd go on some adventure and look at the history of, of visit some castle or whatever there figure out what we could learn from that. And, you know, what does it mean for your life today? So, and of course, that's why I went into history um, 
in college. So yeah, constant learning is necessary. And I actually worked for a guy as a consultant, uh, the CEO of the company. This guy would read like five or six books a week. I mean, I went shopping with him to a, to a um, bookstore once. I picked him up from the airport and was taking him home. And he says, oh, we're going to stop at the bookstore. And I was just like holding the bag. And he was taking books off the shelf. <laughs> we left there with like 30 books. And I'm sure he read them by the, you know, into the next month. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah, you got to read. You know, when you get guys that are our age, you know, they start, or they get a little bit older, you know, they don't realize that this thing that we're talking through, this little box, mm -hmm. they're not embracing technology. And, you know, like I used to work next door was a radio shack. We know what happened. Right. To them. Then there was a mm -hmm. Sears next door. We know what happened to them. And a right. lot of and a lot of people, as they get older, they think, well, this is the way we've always done it. And all of a sudden you're out of business. You're you're no longer relevant. So talk to us about that and how guys that get out of the military after 20, 30 years, all of a sudden they're like, now what? I don't know what to yeah. do. I've been, I've been doing what I've been told to do for the last 30 years. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And, you know, I was working with a coach yesterday and she said the same thing to me is you guys, you get out of the military, you've been directed to do what you need to do. Um, so when you're in this, you know, self-driven world, in, in the civilian world and you have to be a self-starter and uh, especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur, figuring out what to do and how to do it and when to do it. That's not what we grew up with being in the military. And that's honestly a problem that I have. And I still, I struggle with it every day. It's like, okay, um, I've got, you know, my big rocks list that I'm looking at right now. And it's got 12 things on there. And I'm like, holy shit, which one do I tackle and how? And um, that's the biggest problem for, um, for military people. However, we are so well trained in being in a team, um, in doing things in supporting other people on our team and in knowing what the mission is that we can take action without a lot of direct input to the point where I was like flabbergasted when I was in Iraq and there were literally two warring factions of uh, two tribes who were trying to occupy this town that they had historically both occupied and Saddam Hussein had just kept a tight rein on the violence and he'd go in there and kill anybody that, you know, he didn't like that they weren't violent, but now all of a sudden the reins were off and who was going to be in charge of this town. And it got to the point where it was, you know, 60 to a hundred people on opposite ends of the street, ready to, you know, have a high noon showdown. And there was a platoon of Marines in between them. And those guys kept the peace, 19 and 20 year old guys without direct communication back to, you know, Baghdad to deal with it. They just did what they needed to do because they know the mission. And I think, I think that's the biggest thing that we have in our back pocket that we don't realize is mission. What's my mission now? That's what I got to define. And I have to learn how it's different in the civilian world in terms of executing. You know, and and, and, like I said, you know, and I talk to like a lot of veterans become um, veterans that I call them. You know, right. if you spend, a, if you graduated basic training, Everybody at least knows what an SOP is. Right. Um, but once we don't, a lot of people, they start a business without having a business plan. And like right. my friend Stephen Kuhn talks about, if you do not have a business plan, you do not have a business, you have a hobby. Right. So right. I think right. a lot of people, like you said, you know, we got to learn how to do an SOP for our businesses. And we would never go out to on the, on the battlefield without having a warning order and without right. having 
SOP. So talk to us about building those SOPs and warning orders in your business. Um, well, one thing that um, we had the luxury of while we were in the military was the experience of the people around us of higher rank who had done it and the people who had taught us how to do it. And that's what you've got to find in order to do those things. Like I'm completely in love with the small business development center that's run out of uh, Cal State Fullerton because they provide so much help and so much direction and so much training. So you're doing something that you're used to doing in, or in terms of an SOP, but they can show you how to execute it in terms of this is the civilian world and this is how business works and this is what you need. So you got to find the people, mentors, other leaders. You've got to build a team around you to do that, whether it's, you know, people who have more experience, other veterans such as yourself who've done these things to whatever extent that they've done them and can offer advice and help. And it's we have this kind of weird thing that when we when we become a, a veteran and we're no longer in the military, we have this idea that we're supposed to be able to know how to do it and we forget that while we were in the military that we had a team that we had people around us i could go to my ncos and say what do we do sergeant what the hell are we going to do how do we do it you know what's your advice and rely on the people around you we have to rebuild that um out in the civilian world and we have to recognize that the way civilians work is different than what we're used to and how do we adapt to that plus we're plus we don't know how to translate our military experience into a resume that is civilian speak so thankfully there's a lot of places where you can get a lot of help there and um, the veteran services offices at the at the county levels is the best place to start and the VA is the, is the next best place to start. But now, you know, they know who's who. Unfortunately, as veterans and I love my veterans, but I am one, but um mm -hmm. we're cheap as shit. We don't want to spend any money. Uh, right. You know, but we you know, a lot, like I was talking to somebody last night, I was I was a guest on a show and you know, we won't think twice about buying the brand new Apple 13 iPhone, um, but you talk about getting coached by somebody like, by like Les Brown or Grant Cardone or Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, oh, wait, they want $700 to coach me, but you know, you're willing yeah. to pay $1,300 for a smartphone, but you're not willing to pay for a course that is going to teach you to be smart. Yeah. 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 And you're right. That that's an obvious mistake. Um, or at least it should be. Um, However, there are a lot of free resources out there to get you started and get you to a point where maybe you can, you're earning a little bit of money and you've got some momentum and then you can, you know, uh, sign up for those um, more expensive uh, coaches so you can learn faster. And that's going to be the big key. Um, paying attention to how you use use your resources exactly just like when you were in the military you know um sorry we don't have enough of this so we're going to have to make do with what we have and and uh be flexible and and uh you know scavenge parts or whatever it is you need to do that same type of attitude um especially is important so do the things that you did while you were in the military take stock of who you are what you have what you want and what you need to get there and go find people who can help you um and there's tons and tons of free stuff out there for us you may not be able to go to grant cardone or sign up for gary vaynerchuk's um coaching program but you can watch their YouTube videos. You can subscribe to them on uh, Instagram yeah. and, and, and then, you know, join a group of other vet entrepreneurs who yeah. um, watch those things and 
you know, just talk about them. Find somebody who you can bounce ideas off of who's trying to do something similar or different from you as far as their business goes. It doesn't really matter um, as long as you've got somebody to bounce ideas off of and talk through. That's really you know, and like And like, you know, like you said, I, that's the way I started out. You know, I started out watching as many vid free videos as I can. Mm -hmm. But eventually you're like, all right, it can only take me so far. Right. And, and, you know, in business, you know, like you like you are. And we're going to talk about your business in a minute. If a person doesn't have skin in the game, it mm -hmm. doesn't mean as much. It's kind of like if you're That's married, true. if you're married and you have a gym membership um, and you got it for free, you're not going to go. But all of a sudden, if your wife looks at you on the first of the month because your gym membership dues come out and you're not going, she's going to kind of yeah. get So if you don't have skin in the game, a lot of times you're not going to put forth any effort. That's true. That's true. And at that point, it becomes about, you know, your identity and who you want to be. Do you want to be that guy that just watches videos or do you want to be that guy that gets something done? And everybody wants to be that guy who gets something done. They just don't find the energy or the impetus to get going. And I'll be honest, I got uh, I got sidelined by my divorce and, um, you know, that just kicked off major depression for me. And I I hit a patch of homelessness and um, I got I got help from from the Salvation Army, but they treated me like I was a drug addict. You know, like because most of the homeless people that they treated evidently were, were drug addicts, and I, you know, worked with the with some veterans when I was uh, helping veterans find jobs, and some of them had their drug addictions too. So I understand that, but they they were kind of locked into this one way of viewing homeless people and veterans, especially, is that you got to fight against to get what you need from them. So. I ended up getting back on my feet uh, January 1st, 2020. I was like, okay, great. I got an apartment, got a vehicle, got my stuff. I got things to do. This is going to be my year. And then COVID hit in March and said, hey, Jim. <laughs> right. So I've been struggling along with that. And I've been slowly building up and using the free resources that I knew about. Luckily for me, I was in the veteran service organization community, so I knew what was out there. And if you can find a peer advisor or a veterans advocate um, who knows who is in the veteran service community around you, that's gold, right? And that is what you need to do and start just you know, figure out a program, work your program, and uh, you can get all kinds of help doing yeah, but, it. Oh, you know, like I've been in recovery 33 years. I just celebrated. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people, you Good. know, they say the heaviest thing to pick up is a telephone. So a yeah. lot of people are afraid to ask for help, you know, which for me, I don't have any problem because I love my favorite saying, and my wife makes fun of me all the time, is um, you don't know what you don't know. So right. I have idea that does. You know, right. so, you know, what do you see for people that a lot of people are afraid to ask for? How do you get over that? <sighs> um, it's a double-edged sword coming from coming from the military because um, the way, especially in combat, uh, ground troops and, and, and um, you know, guys in the Navy and guys in the Air Force that are directly engaged in combat, they know what's needed for their buddies. So you get your help, but you don't really have to ask for it a lot. Um, so you get used to not having to ask for it. And it seems like it seems like weakness coming out of the military. I kind of got lucky in myself that I <laughs> was on an active duty tour when my marriage blew up and I was sitting in my office after this horrendous phone call and I just leaned back in my chair and I'm like, this is on a Friday. And I'm like, 
I'm either going to have to call mental health or I'm going to stick a hose in my tailpipe. I mean, that, that's how bad I felt. And I sat there and here I am with, uh, as, a, as a lieutenant colonel with all the clearances in the world. And I'm going, oh, fuck, there goes my SCI and all this stuff. And I just thought, you know what? If I don't get help, I'll definitely lose it. So I called. I made an appointment, talked to the SSO and said, here's what's going on. Talked to my talked to the colonel. And he said, yep, don't worry about it. Whatever you need will support you. Um, because it, I finally figured out that military medicine, uh, even though they treat dependents and, um, you know, uh, wives and stuff, is really for combat readiness. And if I go down a rabbit hole of mental health problems, I'm not going to be combat ready. And so they're there to make me combat ready. And um, that's why I went. <laughs> that came with a <laughs> that came with a different kind of uh, uh, privacy um, that civilians enjoy that <laughs> he didn't that I didn't enjoy. And since I was ranked so since I was a lieutenant colonel, it's like the the 14th Air Force um, executive officer was at the wing commander's um, staff meeting every time and and once a month they talk about you know people who were undergoing mental health treatment and i was like the highest ranking person on base who was being treated and i'd get you know the day after the 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 base commander's call <laughs> the exec would call me jim hey how you doing what's going on you okay you need anything um and uh so it actually worked out and, and I didn't lose my clearance. I kept my job. I was able to keep going forward and um, I got the help I needed. And I saw, and I started advocating for that. And I saw other troops that were just going by the wayside, unfortunately, because they didn't want to lose their clearance. They were afraid. So now you know? what are you doing now? What are, what is him doing now? I know you got some big stuff coming down the pipe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so I've been, slogging to try and get a um a consulting practice going and i'm kind of vacillating between can i get enough cachet um on my own and do it on my own or should i look for a job but i'm so i'm still trying to build this business um so i'm going to be publishing a course for um stressed out overwhelmed executives because i went through a lot of stress and overwhelmed with <laughs> with all the kind of things that fell apart in my life and then going into jobs that I wasn't completely trained for um, down at 14th Air Force in Vandenberg. And it's like how I overcame that and was able to lead um, my team and get things done. Um, so I'm gonna be coming out with that probably in about six weeks. And I'm so I'm gonna start publicizing it marketing it and doing all that stuff get my funnel set up and everything um and then uh as i mentioned when we were in the green room talking about uh you know coming up with this ted talk around leadership and what it's not and how people view it in really confusing ways because they don't understand research and theories and we should we need to because theories are really all we have, right? We interact with the world through theories, which are basically how we communicate. Right? When I tell you, hey, I saw, I saw a dog yesterday, you know what a dog is because there's this word that we've agreed upon the meaning. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's basically what a theory is. Something that helps us describe and understand what's going on in the world and it comes with all the viewpoints and um, lack of clarity and impreciseness that we all have because this is how we have to communicate and we experience things through our nervous system not directly and that everything's basically an interpretation and if you understand theories you're better prepared to use any techniques 
because um, you can employ those techniques appropriately because you understand the theories behind them. So I want to get people to be more comfortable with theories so that you can actually go, okay, well, that makes sense. So that should work for me and my situation. Uh, so I'll try it out. Well, you know, and I've, if it works, I've, great. A lot of people, you know, like I'm, I'm the world's worst guitar player, but you know, <laughs> I, I was taught that you got to learn theory before mm -hmm. you learn anything else. Cause then everything is based on the theory to where, you know, even if, if you just pick up a guitar and you start, you know, doing chords and stuff, that's great, but you're not going to really progress where you can be if you would study the theory first and then the practical knowledge. Right. But um, I'm actually um, starting to take guitar lessons myself and I'm working with this program that says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get you playing, right? We're going to get you using the techniques and while you're using the techniques, we'll teach you about theory at the same time so that you can understand better what you're doing. Um, because yeah, when you say music theory to people, especially, it's, hey, I just want to be able to play bar songs. Um, they're going to freak out a little bit. So um, you have to understand. I, I don't know that you have to completely learn a theory, learn the theories or like get a doctorate in music theory or even a bachelor's degree in musicology to be a good guitar player. Like uh, the story goes that um, Slash knew like two or three chords before he joined Guns N' Roses. And well, that's great because he had a certain amount of, you know, just natural talent. And that's part of the equation too. But how you learn is um, a little bit less important than what you learn. And, um, but be open to learn from anybody. And if you realize that you can start to understand theories just as theories, how, how do theories exist? Why do they exist? What, what are they? Then you can look at them and go, okay, that makes sense to me, or that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to leave that part out of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this, especially when you're talking about um, people and how they behave. Um, and for example, communications theory, right? Uh, and it's basically the idea that I have an idea in my head. It's a picture. I translate that into words. I speak the words. You hear those words and you build the same picture in your head, which is kind of, that's great if you're talking about how a telephone system works, because you take the sound, you break it down to electrical impulses, it sends on the wire and undoes it on the other end, but that's not how people work. So learning that, uh, you know, if you come and ask me, hey, Jim, you got any water? And I say it's in the refrigerator. You're going to open up the refrigerator and expect to find a bottle of water or or a Brita filter in there or something full of water that you can take out and drink because you're thirsty. But if you don't and you say, hey, there's no water, and you go, yeah, there is. There's water in the defrost system. There's water in the vegetables. You're going to go, Jim, you're an idiot. <laughs> because, you know, so that those words that you said to me and my response that, yeah, there's, there's water in the vegetables were factually accurate but that wasn't the meaning you were trying to convey you're trying to tell me hey jim i'm thirsty i want something to drink and i understand that because as a human being i understand the culture we grew up in i understand the language that we share i understand all of that stuff and you don't have to spell out directly hey jim i'm thirsty do you have any water that i can drink <laughs> you don't have to say it like that right so um theories have their limits theories also um have the ability to let you learn something and take new action because um that's the only real value of any kind of education or any kind of learning is what can you do with it and does what you're able to do with it get you what you want 
So, but, you know, but also, you know, um, a lot of people, they, they worry about theory so much um, that they, they don't take any kind of action. You know, like yeah. the podcasting world, you know, there's a lot of people, they want to start a podcast, but they don't have the right camera. They don't have the right um, audio. They don't have the right connections. So they just never do anything. They don't take any action because they're trying to get all the theory together and try to get yeah. all, you know. So I think sometimes you have to take the theory and then the more important is putting action. To even yeah, it, theory, you know, and that's a that's a. Um... That's a that that's actually a little bit of a confusion about what theory is because then they're talking they're not talking theory they're thinking about the techniques and they're looking at well how does Kim Kardashian do it you know and oh I got to have this kind of phone and I got to have this kind of editing stuff and I've got to you know have all of this stuff um, and she's at a level where she needs that stuff to do the things that she's doing. Um, and, you know, she's got professional photographers and stylists and all of this thing. Um, you and I, we're just getting on, <laughs> we're just getting on the computer with my little uh, Logitech camera and my little microphone here, and you've got your equipment and we're doing it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the confusion between what it looks like in the best possible way um, in terms of whatever it is, production value or how how Grant Cardone is doing it, because he makes ten million dollars a year, and but that's not where he started, right? So you've got to find people that are doing things you want to do, and talk to them, and they'll tell you, yeah, right. I use this now because I can afford to, and I can, and I've got a team of people around me who help me do it. And, you know, I've got an assistant who monitors the live stream and can, you know, feed me the, the, the comments from the three different places where it's playing. They, they, they'll say, I just started out with my iPhone, you know, and 10 years ago, iPhones were crappy. <laughs> now they're great. Using an iPhone. You well, know? you know, cause like, so, I tell everybody, you know, like Gary Vaynerchuk, some of his most popular videos that have 10 million views were with a flip cam at a garage sale. Right, and, right. You know, million views, but it was because he just created action. So my last two questions talking about action. How do we find you? How do, can we support your mission? Um, probably the easiest way is to connect with me on LinkedIn. So it's, of course www.linkedin.com slash in slash Jim Vasconcelos, all one word. Um, I'll uh, go ahead and send you that, send you my uh, other details too, so you can post it. But that's the quickest way to get in touch with me. Um, right now, I'm actually looking for people who are in um, management jobs where they've got a team where they kind of hit this level where they're overwhelmed. There's too much stuff on their plate. Um, they spend all their time at work. And then by the time they get home, they're exhausted. And they, the relationships, everything around you feels like it's falling apart because you don't know what to do and you can't get anything done. So I'm trying to put together a um, focus group of people who are in that position for this course that I'm building so I can flesh out you know, what, what people want. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, send me a message on LinkedIn. That'd be great. Um, uh, networking. I'm open to anybody, really. So, yeah. And if you are in Southern California, uh, especially Orange County, because of my background working in veteran services and you're a veteran and you're trying to start a business, I pretty much know who's who in the zoo to get things started and to work with. I've got a ton of veteran connections. Hit me up. I'll help you out as much as I can. And LinkedIn's the best way. Okay. And I love LinkedIn. Yeah. I'll, I do most of my damage on LinkedIn. I think I have yeah. like 25,000 connections and it's growing every day. So, and like Gary says, you know, the top two um, platforms in the next year or two 
or TikTok and LinkedIn. So if you guys are if you guys are not on LinkedIn, you're missing a lot of money. You're listening. Oh, you're, yeah, definitely. Last question I have. Um, a lot of people um, are struggling now. Um, I live in New Jersey and I think, you know, I had one of the Iron Chefs on from the Food Network last week. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we've lost over 100,000 restaurants in the United States in the last two years. So we got a lot of parents that are driving Uber, DoorDash just to put food on the table. So if I ask the average person to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if right. I ask somebody that's listening to our show right now to do something in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. And I'm going to mm-hmm. ask a two-part question for you because this, this is something I, I think you can answer two ways. If somebody is struggling with their business, what can they do in the next 24 hours to get some help? And number two, if somebody is struggling with their mental health, what can they do in the next 24 hours to get some help? Well, especially if you were a veteran, if you're a veteran, get on Facebook, get on LinkedIn, find the groups that fit that bill. If you're looking for um, veteran business owners, there's tons of them on Facebook and uh, on LinkedIn, and there's tons of groups for it. If you're struggling with your mental health or issues like that, um, and if it's really bad, call the mental health crisis line for the VA. Um, you can go to va.gov and find it. Uh, if it's kind of emergent but not critical, there's a lot of groups on Facebook of just veterans to just, you know, sit down and kick the crap and talk about stuff, and and they can point you in the right directions no matter where you are. Somebody's near you and can tell you who to contact. Okay, um, and I just want to say thank you, brother. I know it's been we've been going back and forth for for a yeah. while, trying to get our times together. So I just want to say thank you, and I'm very grateful that you came on today. I want, like I said, I want to thank our sponsors. If you guys love coffee, make sure you pick up some Vertical Momentum Coffee. Um, it's actually handmade, hand roasted by a veteran-owned company, so it is 100% hand roasted. Um, 22% of all my proceeds. Go to help Project Die Hard to save helping veterans that are struggling with homelessness and also PTSD, traumatic brain injuries. And I just want to say thank you, Jim. I'm so grateful for you. And I can't wait to see what you got coming on. And whatever I can do, you got my full support 100%. I appreciate it. And I'm so glad you're doing what you do to help other veterans. And it's been an honor to be on the show with you. So thank you. All right, guys. So make sure you check out Jim on LinkedIn. He's got, I love his profile. He's got a lot of great things going on. So definitely go on LinkedIn, check out his profile. All right, guys, remember vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.